Key, I'm so sorry I missed your Bible study today. I wanted to make it, but I was up till 2 a.m. last night working on my sermon, and I just didn't get it as done as I needed to. But I wanted to be there. I'll be there next time, I promise. All right. Uh, thank you for reading that passage, Sister Vanessa. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, how does that passage make you feel? Uh, grateful? Good. Yeah, sometimes I worry we Christians can't help ourselves and we force our own understandings on this passage. Sometimes we force understandings of victory onto the, this crucifixion story. Uh, we get so eager for a feel-good story, you know, to find hope, in the, so just, just to try to find hope and encouragement in the triumph of the human spirit, that we sometimes just rush through this passage to get to the resurrection in chapter 16, or we read this passage in chapter 15 with resurrection-colored, rose-tinted glasses because we just want Mark to have a happy ending so bad, even though Mark can be a thoroughly depressing book. You know, and it's so easy to just ignore all the... I mean, Mark chapters 15 and 14 are some of the longest chapters in Mark. We got, what, 47 verses here and got 51 verses and 14, and it's so easy to just ignore all the lengthy double dose of darkness, cruelty, and ridicule that Jesus is suffering here in chapters 14 and 15. And I'm as tempted to do that as anyone, and when I ask myself why, I kind of get a little convicted, like maybe I don't really care about God's will, but I just care about my own, and it doesn't matter what God wanted this passage to mean, what matters is what I want this passage to mean. And I want a happy ending, you know, and it's so easy to not trust in the Lord. And it's so easy to read even this scripture of the crucifixion, not with a real concern for Jesus Christ's mission, or actually God the Father's mission that he gave Jesus Christ his son to execute, but rather my mission of being accomplished and victorious in my life. And so... I think that's a very big danger. If, if we mentally fast forward to the resurrection at the end of the story or read these two chapters with the resurrection in mind, we can very easily fail to see the true victory in Jesus Christ's forsaken defeat on the cross. We can miss his unwavering declaration of God's word, quoting scripture with his dying breath. breath. We can miss his unwavering trust in his Father's will, even though it's costing him his life in the most cruel ways. But as our sermon will show you, all too often in the midst of this present darkness, ourselves and our theologians do not trust in these two very clear victories because their first priority and ours is to look out for number one, to meet our needs, to preserve our place in society, and to achieve tangible and lasting progress. All too often we see these words not as cries of faith, but as cries of despair, doubt, and pain. And our theologians back us up. And I think we do that almost as a way to make the story a little less painful, because deep down, even though this is clearly a moment of utter humiliation and defeat for Jesus, Deep down, we want to see Jesus win in worldly terms because I want to win here too, especially the culture war. I mean, deep down on some level, I want Jesus Christ to come down from that cross and kick some butt. 
There, I admit it. Not only because it's painful and embarrassing to be a Christian and to watch everything going around, everything around us going to heck in a handbasket, but because on some level, I don't even think me myself want to be held accountable to Scripture and follow Jesus Christ's example here. Well, unless I can get discouraged and have doubt and pain when I'm bearing my own cross. I mean, I'll be honest, I struggle facing my own death or what seems to be the impending death of my nation. I mean, maybe that makes me a coward. Uh, coward, sorry. As a result, and desperate for victory, it's so easy for even me myself to cling to false hopes, making me victorious or making me righteous, and false hopes of my own, you know, or whatever QAnon sends me on Twitter. Uh, but let's be honest, all of us have said it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's ever said that? Who's ever prayed that and meant it? Yeah, we all have a cross to bear. Who's ever prayed that, really meant it, and then realized it wasn't really a cross we were bearing? We were just being petty and ridiculous and childish? Okay, okay, oh my gosh. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The barista put half and half in my coffee instead of heavy cream like I said three times over the, I mean, yeah, that's me. Uh, uh, and, you know, honestly, I think a lot of us do say this, or at least feel it in our heart. The heart cry is the same. When we're in much less dire straits than Jesus was here, slowly suffocating to death on the cross while bearing the sins of the world. But nonetheless, this passage today is one of the most wrongly interpreted scriptures in all the Bible. Yes. I mean, but this is a good object lesson because few other passages reveal what I call the QAnon method of biblical interpretation more than this one. Uh, is anyone familiar with QAnon? Okay. Well, it, is anyone familiar with how much it's gained credence and uh, favor and cre like value within the religious right, like in their worldview and how the world works? They're very popular within the American church. And apparently QAnon he communicates or they communicate by dropping these little tweets that have these random statements, kind of like almost like Nostradamus's prophecies or whatever, you know? And they don't really make that much sense because they can mean a lot of things because they have no context. And they're like dripped out like little, like, like little paranoid conspiracy breadcrumbs like over the course of days and hours and months and weeks and these people are just glued to their little Twitter account to get these little QAnon breadcrumbs. And then you gain status in the QAnon community, you could almost call it a church, the, in, the, in the QAnon subculture, by doing something called baking. Baking is when you take these random data points that he's tweeted and you mix them together with the content with, and try to figure out what they mean with your own context and then you somehow make sense of all this stuff. And this is why QAnon can come up with this conspiracy theory one day that seems completely opposite to this conspiracy theory the next day. It's not because Q himself is saying any conspiracy at all. It's that the QAnon community who like takes his little random tweets as the word of God, different people are interpreting those to mean whatever they want. Okay, that's what's going on there. And uh, this passage in Mark, Q Anonymous, this passage in Mark, 
uh, is very, very vulnerable to uh, pastors and Christian theologians, and I use that term loosely. The first thing you have to understand about Christian theologians is they never let the Bible get in the way of a good new idea, okay? They really don't. And the second thing you have to understand about Christian theologians is, to them, Christian theology is just the art of justifying whatever it is they want to believe with random proof texts from the Bible, okay? Because remember, none of these guys can read Greek and Hebrew. They're all French and German philosophers, okay? They just read French and German and maybe English, you know? And that's what happens is a lot of times people... Christian theologians and philosophers, not the exegetes themselves, not the scholars of the ancient languages, take this passage and then they just randomly pluck random verses out of the Old Testament or the New Testament that they like and just kind of bake it into the interpretive pie to communicate what they mean. And the problem is the people in the pew, you wonderful people, don't even know that's happening because... Sometimes some of these pies taste really good. I mean, they preach great. So we're going to go over that today, and I'm going to let you know your interpretive options, and you can pick the one you want, because I'm very libertarian. I mean, I'll tell you when you're wrong and why I'm right, but you're allowed to be wrong here. I know that's very strange for a Southern Baptist church, but you're allowed to disagree with me. You're allowed to be wrong. Others are allowed to be wrong. I know every Southern Baptist has to cross that bridge someday and accept that other people are allowed to think and walk and talk and live differently, and we're, we still have to love them no matter what. That was a hard moment for me, too. Uh, but these are the options. We're going to go over them, and you can pick the one you want, because remember, theology is really just justifying whatever it is you want to believe with a few random biblical proof texts sprinkled, baked in there to feel good about yourself. Okay, so the first option. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think this option goes far enough. This is the ultra-liberal interpretation. When Jesus was on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultra-liberal interpretation is that Jesus was just a human man suffering in agony in clear defeat. And all that's true. He was a human man. I wouldn't say just. The just isn't true. But Jesus was a man clearly suffering in agony and human defeat. And he just gave up and despaired you know, end of story. The story didn't go like he wanted. He thought he was going to take over and defeat the Romans or something. He's a failed Messiah. Think Albert Schweitzer, you know, back then. Okay, and so he's a failed Messiah who's giving up in agony because he didn't see a cross coming. It just He got blindsided by his defeat on the cross. And now he's despairing in a moment of doubt and pain. Okay, does anybody, this is the ultra-liberal position, think 1921 super-liberalness. Or actually probably 1915 super-liberalness. Any takers? Going once. Oh, you want this one? Sinner, I'm going to pray for you. Okay, we got one taker for the ultra-liberal position of how to interpret this passage. Pray for him. Okay, we got, okay, so, hey, someone keep score. We got one. We got one for the ultra-liberal. All right, the second interpretation uh, goes a little farther. It's the liberal position. Uh, it builds upon this passage. Uh, it says, look, this cry is clearly a crisis of faith moment. Who's ever had a crisis of faith moment? Yeah. Who's ever cried this when you're having a crisis of faith? Yeah. I know. Just last week when that, when that poor young girl with the nose ring messed up my order at Starbucks, I mean, I really felt like I was suffering. <laughs> I needed my coffee right then. I just dropped off my kids. I hadn't, I had, I had gotten my kids dressed because my wife left early in the morning, Friday on a jet plane at 5 a.m., so I had to get my kids dressed Friday morning and drive them down there without any coffee all the way across town. 
without having any coffee. And I finally got into the drive-thru at Starbucks there. After waiting in that traffic at 71st, you know, 71st and Riverside, she couldn't get in there, and then she just messed it up. And I'm lactose intolerant. It's horrible. Okay, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to. I feel so much better. I feel purged. I had to vent that, that suffering, uh, that weariness and well-doing I had. Okay, so the liberal, this is just the normal position, option two, sorry, not normal, the liberal position. Jesus clearly had a crisis of faith, mo, faith moment. Jesus felt abandoned while suffering on the cross, but we're still believing liberals here. We're not pure atheists. We're just believing liberals. As every good liberal Christian knows, God never left his side just like he never leaves ours. Be encouraged. And of course, this position has a lot of uh, things that lend to it. It preaches really well, especially when you need like a pep talk and need to go to church for a nice feel-good message. Uh, I mean, in other words, even Jesus had a rough day being tortured to death, you know? So don't get discouraged. Sometimes, don't be discouraged when you want to give up, because even Jesus had it rough. do we have any takers for this one? This is, this is a little better, though, right? This is getting a little better. It's a little better. Anyone want to stop here? Mickey, do you want to change your answer? Oh, oh so this, okay. So just the simple believing liberal, call it the believing liberal position is a little better. Okay, good. All right, good. I mean, I get it. It's so easy to get discouraged when we all wuss out under the burden of our own crosses or our own stupidity and rebellion. But, and it feels so comforting to know that Jesus had his moment of doubt and pain on the cross too. But I'm glad you don't want to stop there because it's nonsense too. I mean, look, ever since youth group, we've been poisoned by these false hopes of modern American evangelical Christianity, and we've been taught to believe somewhere between the ping pong and the pizza and that adult who really seemed to care about our opinions. Uh, we somehow started to believe that, you know, our pain and our, our unhappiness is a problem of great concern to God. Uh, some of us even grew up in a youth group where we were taught that, you know, he exists to eagerly take it all away and turn us into happy, healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, good little productive Christians, or at the very least provide a little encouragement on Sunday morning to endure another week of first world problems. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, I'm not sure that God sees our pain, our unhappiness, or even our lack of earthly blessings as problems at all, much less big ones that merit his prompt concern. I mean, I try not to ask God for too much, you know. Maybe if I just wait, because deep down I still want him to answer. I just think if I save it up, you know, until I really need it, maybe he's more likely to say yes, because I'm not bugging him too much. That's why I never pray. That's probably not what he wants. But no, but on... On one hand, there is something in Scripture to be said for, you know, how dare we ask for too much and or the wrong things, being how we've already been born in the 20th century on the greatest country on earth, you know. (laughs) I'm going to ride this American thing out and try to (laughs) work my resources, you know. I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with reading the Bible and saying, well, maybe God provided me with whatever he needed to to fulfill his purpose for my life, you know. Maybe I shouldn't ask for more. There is that. Okay, but enough of that. We're going to go to the third position. I hope you like it better. This is the moderate position. Uh, It's not liberal or conservative. It builds on the liberal, and then it just keeps veering over into conservative land. 
Okay, spoiler alert, these positions, I'm getting more and more conservative as I go. So, you know, don't cash all your chips in too early. Okay, okay the moderate position. Jesus wasn't just, Jesus was crying in doubt and pain. And, uh, you know, uh, he was having a moment. But he wasn't just despairing, or I guess despairing is the wrong word that's loaded. He wasn't just bemoaning uh, his torturous death and suffering on the cross. He was also expressing his extreme uh, anguish over making atonement and bearing the sins of the world. Ooh, I like that. Who likes all that talk about atonement and sins of the world, making Jesus' death, make it go away for our sins? Yeah. I love it when the theologians get all technical and sort that out for me. But because Jesus was doing this, God couldn't look upon his son on the cross bearing all that sin for those three hours from, you know, the sixth to the ninth hour. That's noon to three for those of you not living on Roman time. So God made it dark outside at the very least because he didn't want to look or couldn't look. You know, and some people even go farther. Some even more conservative moderates say that maybe God even looked away or turned his back. Who's ever heard this one? Is this what we grew up with? A little bit. It's getting closer to what we heard growing up, right? It's getting closer, yeah. And in this interpretation, you may hear things like the father hid his face from the son, or the father turned away from the son. And you really needed to hear that back when you were feeling guilty for your sins in youth group. You know, it really made you want to go down to the altar, right? Yeah. Okay. But this is a great example of our first QAnon baking method of biblical interpretation. Uh, We're just pulling random verses out of context in Habakkuk and sprinkling them into this passage here when Mark had no intention of it. Uh, We could easily turn to Habakkuk 1.13 and get where we we find the one verse in Scripture uh, that helps us with this. Okay. Uh, And uh, Habakkuk 1.13 They've actually started to translate it a little differently now, but when I was a kid, it was literally, you can't look on evil. Remember, who's, whoever remembers it that way, back in the olden days, you can't look on evil. And they realized that was confusing a lot of people. So nowadays, they try to change it a little bit. Uh, you know, your eyes are too, thine eyes are too pure to approve of evil. They stopped using look at, they changed look at to approve. Uh, but when I was a kid, it was, you can't look at evil, and you cannot look at harm favorably. But... Uh, Nowadays, they've kind of changed it to, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Okay. Yeah, this verse is not making a metaphysical statement about God's ability to look on sin or not. God sees all your sins. God looks on all your sins. God's well aware of your sins, probably. He sees your sinfulness more than you can. Uh, and the Hebrew here was never trying to communicate that God had an inability to look upon sin uh, in Habakkuk. He wasn't trying to, uh, that's not what Habakkuk was trying to say, and it was an honest mistake, but this is why you shouldn't read the Bible in English like theologians do to find something you like. You need to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, which they can't. But <laughs> that's why they're theologians, because they couldn't pass Greek and Hebrew class. Uh, really, they could learn that French and German, though, those easy languages. But no, this passage should not be baked in like a QAnon nugget, okay, to convince us that God can't look on sin, and so then he had to make it dark and turn his eyes away from the sun or hide his face. Uh, You know, I'm sorry, that's just not what's going on here. 
Uh, but for some people, and especially when this verse gets taken out, they kind of double down. And are, so obviously, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to put my chips on the table. I don't agree with the third position. You know, I think God, I think it's just wrong. Uh, I think it's more wrong than the others, actually. I think God's well aware of our sin. I actually had an argument with him once because he wanted to watch me sin, and I told him I couldn't do it if he watched. And he was like, that's the point. Usually, he has the audacity to give me some privacy, but in this instance, he wasn't. Well, he won that time. Show you. But yeah, no, he, he did win because he was going to watch, and that was oh, awkward. All right, but we're going to move on to the fourth and final interpretation, the not the, not the ultra-liberal, not the liberal, not the moderate. We're going to go, this is, this is kind of like the moderate position with teeth, you know? If... Uh, if the moderate position is socialism, then this fourth position is, you know, socialism with teeth. It's communism. It's, it means it. Uh, the fourth position, we call it the conservative position. It's the one that most fundamentalist evangelical Americans in the 20th century adhere to. It's the one I heard growing up. And it's going to sound very familiar when you hear it, okay? Because to the conservative, even fundamentalist conservative uh, American Christian, those first three just don't go far enough. You know, it didn't just get dark because God didn't want to and or couldn't look upon his son bearing the sins of the world, regardless of why it got dark. And okay, that ha- maybe we went too far with that Habakkuk proof text. You know, uh, nonetheless, Jesus said what he said on the cross, expressing utter bemoaning and despair and having a crisis of faith and all this very human, relatable stuff to us. He had this crisis of faith and all this uh, doubt and pain because God the Father abandoned his own son and rejected him. Who's ever heard that one? Okay, this is what I grew up with. Yeah, so we have Jesus on the cross uh, in doubt and pain and despair, uh, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's ever seen the passion of the cross? think that's how Mel Gibson understood it too, <laughs> you know? Uh, and when, I mean, this is, this is the universally uh, standard position, uh, you know, in conservative uh, Baptist land, or at least was in the 20th century. Uh, and many biblical commentators and preachers, you know, held to it, I'd say. That's the only one I heard growing up. And this is where you heard statements like this on, on Good Friday, you know, like uh, the physical pain suffered in the passion of Christ was nothing in comparison to the spiritual and relational pain that Christ endured as he was separated from his father. Who's, raise your hand if you heard that in a sermon sometime. Yep, okay, we're playing bingo now. Okay, all right. Who's ever heard the father rejected the son? Well, oh, yeah, we heard that one, okay. Yeah, and in the late, in the late 80s and 90s, it really, it, it really ramped up. Uh, uh, who's ever heard exhausting his wrath on the son, the father completely abandoned him? Who ever heard anything about exhaustment of wrath? No? Oh, good. Oh, good. Whew. All right. Who's ever heard uh, that after the uh, father did, exa- did exhaust his wrath on the son, the son felt God or perceived God turn his back on him and heard him laugh in derision? Uh, yeah, that, that's actually what very popular, cutting-edge, evangelical, conservative theologians are writing in the books that your seminarians are going to. Uh, I'm so glad you hadn't got that yet. Just wait 10 years. New crop of preachers. 
Uh, who's heard that God cursed Jesus with damnation? Okay, this is a Tulsa. No one's heard that? I'm so glad that none of y'all have heard this stuff. Okay, don't believe it if you do. <laughs> All right, who's heard the Trinity was broken? Yeah, that's what they're saying these days. Oof. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, this one preaches really well, too, and it's actually, I'd say, for the past 20, 30 years, this has kind of been the, what your intellectual Christians have been uh, believing, and uh, conservatives, I mean. And I'm so glad that none of you guys were hearing this. Uh, and if you guys didn't hear it, well, I assure you your pastor was reading it. Uh, and it's very tempting, especially among conservative Bible-believing Christians, because it's so tough on sin. Who likes how tough on sin? It's pretty tough on sin, though, is it? It makes a big deal out of sin. Yeah, but the problem is it's a very dangerous interpretation because it's turning the story on the cross where Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's turning it almost into this weird, like, torture film or something so we can, like, I don't know, wallow in our shame because our sin is just so great that it cost Jesus this much, you know? Uh, you know, like this is our last chance to feel shame and despise ourselves before the end of the Passion movie, before then we can go back to live, and so we can cry and get all that self-loathing out so then we can feel better when we go out and live our lives the same way we always have, you know, 20 minutes after we watch it, you know, uh, without, you know, bearing any fruit worthy of repentance. I'm so glad you didn't hear that. I'm so glad you've never heard these messages before. Please don't believe it if you ever do hear it. Okay, because this message, even though it goes to an extreme, dangerous point of view, uh, it's doing it for the best of intentions. Uh, it, it's tough on sin, and who feels the church isn't tough on sin enough anymore, right? So pastors have all the right motivation, and we think you're not tough enough on sin in your own lives either, by the way, as pastors, just letting you know. So we're just going to try to just sh shake that condemnation on you and preach these really scary messages to try to get you to get tough on sin yourself, because we all know it says here that we'll be saved by how tough on sin we get in our lives. That's what it says in here. And uh, the problem is it turns the power of sin. When you go for this with the best of intentions to try to get your congregation to stop being so soft on sin, it turns sin, the power of sin, into some almighty force capable of destroying God, or at least turning him into a monster nobody wants to deal with. I mean, you're, we're reading in evangelical theology books now, in evangelical commentaries, that this passage means the Trinity was broken, that God is exhausting his wrath upon the Son, okay? Uh, those are very dangerous things, for ultra-conservative pastors and theologians to say. It's being described now by conservatives as what's happening here is a war within the Trinity. Oof. I don't know about you, but I don't like any wars in the Trinity because this is very scary. What they're describing is, well, the word is an ontological brokenness. That just means a brokenness of being. They're saying God is essentially being broken. No one's ever heard a sermon where they say the Trinity was broken at least for three hours at the atonement. No one's ever heard that. Oh, I'm so, thank you, Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, because, what? Okay, well, don't, okay, I'm sorry I said it now. It's like I was like preaching against something you guys didn't even know about. It was wrong. Okay, good. Okay. I mean, but it's really crazy and weird because this crazy idea is actually all the rage. Maybe you guys were just in a really, really healthy church here for like 30, 40 years. You totally missed this. 
Like, if you'd gone to any other church, conservative church, or very, like, in conservative evangelical, not charismatic land, but conservative evangelical, you would have been getting this every Good Friday. I'm so glad that this never happened to you. You were, like, walking between the raindrops. Uh, And uh, this means I can wrap up my message shorter. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Because this message, even though it was taken to the bank by conservative preachers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and kind of took over the evangelical understanding of what this passage means, it really was originated by a bunch of German liberal scholars that were influenced by, like, communist philosophy. And so there's no reason to believe it at all. And I'm so glad you don't. Because all those, all that philosophical reading really is just a waste of time. Uh, It really, really has. But before I wrap up, I do want you to understand that you need not let your heart be troubled if you ever hear do a very, very much better delivered sermon affirming that to be the case, because it's not. They may bring up Galatians 3.13 and say that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Whoever heard that? Yeah. Guys, cursed doesn't mean that the Trinity's broken or that God is torturing his son on the cross, okay? Cursed just means you died. Cursed in the Old Testament, God judged you by killing you. Korah, remember Korah's rebellion? The, the, the ground opened up and you died, okay? That's what cursing meant. Cursing just means you're doomed, you're dead, okay? No idea of later spiritual weirdness is gone. It just means your physical body got killed. Or if you ever hear anyone bringing this up and trying to justify it with 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made... Him who knew no sin to be a sin on our behalf. Who's ever heard that one on Good Friday? Never heard that one? Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin. He's talking about God the Father. God the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No one's heard that? You heard that? Okay, good. Okay, it doesn't mean he made Jesus sin. Okay, that's just, that's sin offering, Okay. That's something that, that's just a fluke of the Hebrew. Paul is a Jew. If you go read Leviticus, every time your Bible says sin offering, it's just sin. The word's the same. It's just sin. You have to know from context. You know? Uh, and finally, I do want you to know, these conservative pastors and theologians that believe this, they do have all the right motivations. They really are trying to make a really tough, bulletproof atonement and be hard on sin and get us redeemed of all the sin. And this is why they just go a little too far. Uh, in Isaiah 54b, who's ever, who knows the suffering servant passage? This is the other passage they love to bake into this interpretation. Isaiah 54b begins. How does Isaiah, can anyone quote Isaiah 54b? No one? You, you get two points? No, okay. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yes, the theologians take this, and these are the three passages that they bake in to their theology to justify these crazy ideas about the Trinity being broken and about God just beating up the Son on the cross. You know? But it never says that Jesus was smitten by God and stricken and afflicted. Not this passage. It says we ourselves, well, the word here is esteemed. You could also say assumed. We are, some passages, some translations do say assumed. We as we assumed that he was afflicted, struck down, and all that stuff. Well, you know what assuming does, you know? This guy was an innocent victim. 
No, Jesus was getting scapegoated. Jesus got killed because he was upsetting people because he was saying too many true things. So they all united and got rid of him, you know? Because he wasn't just feeding the war machine, you know, in the military-industrial complex. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, all these passages are wrong and dangerous because they're all starting, whether, you start, whether, we, whether we begin with the ultra-liberal who just says he was a human in a moment of doubt and pain, to, and we get a little bit better, to just the liberal, he was a human in a moment of doubt and pain and discouragement and despair and felt abandoned by God, but God was still there, to the conservative where, no, he was a human of feeling doubt and pain and abandonment, and God really did abandon him or at least look away or something. We're all assuming that Jesus is just like us. We're all assuming that Jesus is responding <laughs> to his horrible situation the same way we do. Okay? And that's why it's wrong. Because Jesus is really quoting Psalm 22 here. He's not expressing a pity party. He's not really trying to communicate to us that he's being abandoned. What is Jesus doing in Mark or in Matthew? The same thing he's been doing the whole time. To the end, he is on the cross quoting scripture. Remember, in Mark, Jesus doesn't say his own words a lot. He's always doing what his father's doing, and he's always teaching what his father's teaching, and he's always pushing his father's agenda. The kingdom of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so here he is, dying on the cross, still teaching, still proclaiming God's word, still sowing the seed of the teaching, like he has been since Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And when he's doing that, it matters. Has anyone read this passage before? We'll save it for next week. Next week we're going to preach on this one. But these... But how does, we're just going to go to how does it end? How does this passage end? I would love to preach, I would love to read the whole Psalm 22 to you, but how does it end? We have to understand that in Jewish culture, when you said the name of a psalm, when you, which is just the first verse, you meant the whole, ver, you meant the whole passage, okay? Who's ever quoted a song titled to someone and you meant all the lyrics to it? Who's ever referred to a song title in conversation to someone and you meant the lyrics underneath it? No one's ever done that? Okay, guess not. Okay, who's ever made some, like, fake art in art class, you know, where, like, you got, like, the song title and the face of, like, your favorite singer, but you meant the lyrics even though you couldn't write them out on the beautiful collage? No one's ever done that? Okay. Well, in Hebrew culture, when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm he has memorized by heart that everybody else has memorized by heart, and he means the whole thing all the way to the end. And how does it end? For the king, starting in verse uh, 30, let's, let's go up to verse 29. Uh, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. A posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it, or achieved it, or did it. I mean, in John 19, 13, when Jesus is on the cross, he doesn't say any of this stuff, does he? What's he say? It is finished. What is finished? I mean, some scholars think John, that, Jesus and, that John just, 
he's referencing Psalm 22 too. He's just referencing the end, not the beginning, to make, make it very clear to some of his readers who aren't Jewish. Yes, do these sound like the words of a despairing God-man being rejected and cut off by his father? I mean, I know you guys don't believe in a broken trinity, but does he even feel abandoned here? To read that, not just it just misses the point of Jesus' good example here. He is obediently sowing his father's seed in faith. He's not second-guessing or wavering God's provision and plan for him at all. He knows God has a plan for him, and it's a great plan. Okay, And he knows he is in the center of God's will, right there on the cross. And with his dying breath, he keeps following orders, sowing the seeds of Scripture. I wish that when I encountered a fraction of a cross, or not even God's given cross for my life, just the slightest bit of adversity, that I would remain as confident that I am in the center of God's will for my life, regardless of earthly circumstances, that Jesus is here. Okay? I really wish I did. This is a powerful statement of obedience and faith, not a moment of insecurity, fear, doubt, and pain. I mean, who, these biblically illiterate theologians think the way we do. They go, well, since God clearly abandoned him to die a human death on the cross, Jesus must certainly be feeling abandoned by God. No, we would certainly be feeling abandoned by God, okay? But not Jesus. As if our Lord Jesus Christ, the living God, was of as little faith on the cross as you or I would be. Understanding Jesus to be despairing here of his Father's administration of the universe says more about our theologian's lack of faith than it does our Heavenly Father's relationship with his Son, Jesus Christ, or our Son's relationship and trust in him. You know, I, I second-guess the man upstairs for far less. And usually if I do pray to God after I say these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's I'm begging him to res- remove any sort of misfortune, no matter how small it is, that's hitting me in my life right now, okay? And this is the temptation of reading scripture. Were it not for the Holy Spirit to check us, we read ourselves into it. And when theologians do it, they teach some very scary dangerous things, because it ends up with a broken trinity. And I'm glad none of us believe in that. I'm glad none of you do. I'm glad none of you are familiar with that, and I'm so relieved. Because honestly, who wants to believe in a God like that? A God that would exhaust his wrath on his own son, and then laugh. And honestly, what scares me about this is these theologians are supposed to be the protectors of our faith, And they can't see how breaking the Trinity, even for three hours on the cross, destroys the Christian faith. Okay? Because I need you to understand, the Christian faith and message isn't, one, God exists, and two, he is triune. Okay? That's how we think about it in in modern land. No, the truth of the Christian God is one truth claim, not two. The truth is... We worship a trinity. God is not triune. He is a trinity. Okay? And if you break the Christian definition of God, 
then the Christian God doesn't exist. Maybe the Mormon God exists. Maybe the Muslim God exists. Maybe the Jewish God exists. But not the Christian God exists. The Christian God only exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all time. Okay? Because Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross here for three hours. The Lamb was slain from the creation of the world, our word says, and it has never been a problem with the Trinity before. Uh, I know, in conclusion, I know this message wasn't a feel-good message, uh, but I felt it was an important one. We need to know that God is with us in adversity. When the bad things are happening to us, we are still in the center of God's will for our lives at that moment, and we need to have the faith and trust in him that whether the fiery furnace burns us up or delivers us, one way or the other, though he may strike me down, I, yet I will trust in him, okay? If we get martyred or killed or are a victim of random street crime, okay, well, we'd already served our purpose, okay? And we're going to trust God, and he will not leave us to see destruction and decryption and decay, all right? We're going to trust God no matter what happens to us and believe that he is in control and that he has plans eternal plans to restore and redeem us. Uh, this altar call today is that if you've ever misinterpreted this passage in a way that stunted your spiritual life and let you feel sorry about yourself, you can come down for prayer and repentance. If you've ever used this passage to think God had fallen off the throne instead of trusting his plan for your life, no matter what adversity you were going through, the altar is open for your repentance. Uh, if you've never ex truly accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, to walk with him and trust him no matter what happens. So just put your hand in his and accept what happens to you no matter what. Then the altar is open for you to come to faith because that what, that's what faith is. You put your hand in God's just like Jesus did and you walk with him and speak his truth and do his work no matter what happens, even if it means you get scapegoated, beaten up, framed, tortured, and killed. Because if, you're do if you guys, if I'm doing anything right, we're going to get arrested, framed, beaten up, tortured, and scapegoated and killed as a witness to them. 